This podcast was recorded in the lands of the Wurundjeri, Woiwurrung and Boonwurrung people of the Kulin Nation. We pay our respects to elders past and present and acknowledge that sovereignty was never ceded and that colonisation and dispossession are both ongoing processes. This episode of the ERRR podcast is brought to you by John Cat Educational and this month we're highlighting walkthroughs, but not as you may know it. Many listeners have already heard of and engaged with Tom Sherrington and Oliver Caviglioli's fantastic walkthroughs books. So today I'm ensuring you've also heard about their suite of online resources. Following over 180,000 book sales over 40 different countries, the online resources aim to provide extra support to schools, leaders and teachers to improve their teaching. Each walkthrough has a homepage that includes its own slide decks, videos from Tom explaining the main steps, teacher workbooks, trainer notes and trainer support. And there's a heap more too. From webinars to case stories, an early career framework, forums as well as a modular structure designed for you to create your own programs, Walkthroughs has it all. It's also built around a five-stage model. Engage, explore, evaluate, extend and embed, designed to guide you through launching the walkthroughs right through to integration into your organisational fabric. Go to walkthroughs.co.uk to find out more or find walkthroughs through the John Cat website. This episode of the ERRR podcast is also brought to you by Catalyst, a project pioneered by Catholic education in the Archdiocese of Canberra and Goulburn. Catalyst is an evidence-based educational project that's working directly in schools and with teachers across the ACT and parts of New South Wales. Catalyst has its genesis in this podcast and is a structured and strategic approach to bringing the science of reading and the science of learning to life in more than a thousand classrooms. It's drawing on both local and international expertise, including several guests from the ERRR podcast, to realise a bold vision of transforming students' lives through learning by developing excellent teachers and leaders. If you'd like to find out more about opportunities at the Catalyst Project and Catholic Education in Canberra, including their professional development that they're running, the way that they're engaging Australian and world leaders in evidence-based education, and to even explore employment opportunities, just click on the Catalyst logo or follow the link in the show notes. What truly matters is teachers' expertise. The most important tip for new teachers is to set out your boundaries. 44% of jobs will be automated. It reinforces cycles of disadvantage. Hello listeners and lovers of learning and welcome to episode 76 of the Education Research Reading Room, the podcast that brings you into the discussion with inspiring educators and education researchers. I'm Ollie Lovell and it's a pleasure to be your host in the ERRR. This episode, we're speaking with Nathaniel Swain. Nathaniel is a fantastic contributor to Australian education and has a wide range of experience in a variety of settings. He's worked at Parkfield College, a specialist school that provides education to students who are or have been detained in custody, a secure care setting, or transitioning from these settings. He was a primary teacher and learning specialist at Brandon Park Primary, and he is now a lecturer at La Trobe University. Nathaniel is also the founder of Think Forward Educators, a community of teachers, school leaders, specialists, parents and researchers who work to ensure that every child can succeed through a focus on social equity and the science of learning. Nathaniel has also created a number of free and open source teaching resources, mainly focused around literacy, and it's this that we're speaking about today. This is a wide-ranging discussion that moves from what makes good writing to the writing revolution to the right to learn resources that Nathaniel has created with the Brandon Park Primary team. We also have a bit of fun playing around with literacy and hopefully model within this podcast the kind of fun that can be had by students too in this space. 
It was a real pleasure to have Nathaniel on, and I can't wait to see the impact that he continues to have in the coming years and decades in his new role as a teacher educator, in addition to through his wide variety of other exciting projects in the education space. If you're keen for a weekly injection of educational insight, stimulation, and resources, then why not sign up to my weekly education email? Each week I share with subscribers all of the juiciest educational tidbits that I've collected over the week, wrapped up in one easy to digest and a short email message. Join thousands of other teachers across the world and stay up to date with the most important ideas in education with this Friday afternoon message. To sign up, go to ollilovell.com forward slash subscribe. That's ollilovell.com forward slash subscribe. Now, without further ado, let's jump straight into episode 76 of the ERRR podcast with Nathaniel Swain. Nathaniel Swain, welcome to the Education Research Reading Room. Thanks, Ollie. It's a real pleasure to be here with you. Start off with Nathaniel. What makes good writing? I thought about this a lot in preparing for our little conversation today, and um, I think I've got four things that I want to maybe get across. I think it has to be clear and it has to be succinct. No one wants to read something that's hard to understand and no one wants to read something that's overly long. So, the shorter, the clearer, the better. I also think it needs to be fit for purpose. So, uh, if it's a speech, it has to align with what we expect from a speech. It can't be overly formal, but it also can't be too casual, like a, a conversation around the kitchen table or something like that. And if it's an academic essay, there's certain things that we expect from the language that we use and the way we structure it that's um, befitting of of that level of um, response. I also think that great writing actually has to grab the reader. Like uh, there's so much coming at um, everyone these days in terms of information. You know, people are scrolling constantly, choosing what to read and what to look at. And great writing really has to grab the person reading it and also keep them there. So, you don't want to stop reading good writing is a good definition there. And then I think there's a sense of mastery with writing as well. You want the writer to have some sort of novelty, some uniqueness to it. And great writing should actually reflect the fact that human creativity is infinite and that even though there's a finite number of words that slowly keep getting added to each year, that the ways that you put those words together into interesting and unique sentences and and texts actually have the power to surprise and to challenge and sometimes to invoke a sense of wonder. So, yeah, writing has to do a lot of things, I think. That's great. So, to summarize, you say clear and succinct, fit for purpose, that is kind of matching the genre in which it's meant to fit, should grab the reader and it should exhibit mastery like some sort of novelty and uniqueness. I think that's a great summary. In terms of the first one, is, are there some situations in which writing, good writing is not succinct, would you say? I think if you're trying to make a point with your writing where you're deliberately drawing things out or creating suspense or you might be writing in an ironic way, that, that shows that I know that I'm saying this in a roundabout way, but I'm actually breaking that convention of um, succinctness, which is one of the, it's called Grice's maxims. There's these maxims of conversation that we have both in oral and written language where basically it's be as succinct as possible is one of them. Another one is like be as clear as possible. And, you know, when you break those maxims, you do it for a particular reason or else you're not, you know, being a great writer. So, I think succinctness is key unless you're deliberately not being as uh, short and as quick as possible for a particular reason and you might be trying to make a point out of that. Cool. Grice's maxims, I've never heard of them before. I've, I've just looked them up. <laughs> 
the maximum of quality quality the so the maximum of quality yes yeah, so you, you essentially shouldn't lie when you're having conversations with people or when you're writing and and if you are um, saying something that's untruthful um, and you deliberately it's called flouting the maxim if you deliberately flout the maxim it's for a particular reason maybe you're being sarcastic or maybe you're being sort of you know deliberately off kilter and people are meant to sort of pick up the fact that that can't be true. So maybe you're exaggerating and it's hyperbolous. So that um, maximum of quality is, is really important and actually gets flouted deliberately a lot when we, we use non-literal language. Cool. Is it, are these, tell me more about these maxims. Are these things that you've drawn on yourself for your own writing or how did you come across them? So it's part of um, like linguistics when the study of, um, it's this thing called pragmatics. Um, it's the, it's how um, language is used for social purposes. It's sort of like, you know, um, Pragmatics 101. It's the first sort of thing you learn about when you you look at, I guess, the social uses of language and how linguists over the many centuries and, and thousands of years, in, in fact, if you trace it back to the earliest linguists in, in, in sort of ancient um, classical times, it's, you know, what, it, what is it to communicate well and what is it to get your message across well? And, you know, traditionally or originally that was all oral language. And so a lot of these things refer to conversational maxims but they can apply to the written space as well, given that, you know, writing is, is sort of like a really slow asynchronous conversation between um, a reader and a writer. And with the advent of instant communication with messaging and, and apps and things like that, text messages were, were a first sort of foray into this space or chat rooms, then you actually write in an instantaneous way as well. And those maxims apply in all of those situations. So, you know, if you're going to deliberately be obtuse or deliberately be verbose, you're doing it for a particular social purpose or else you're sort of being annoying in the way that you're writing, if that makes sense. That's great. How did you get into this whole writing and language caper, Nathaniel? Because it seems like you got quite a bit of a passion for it. It's like, where did the story start for you? Well, if you trace it all the way back, I'd, I'd say that I have, you know, I've often wanted to become a writer ever since, the, you know, year five or year four. Like I I was obsessed with reading fantasy novels. Um, I was really into sci-fi and, and stories that took you lots of different places. And so, I, I feel like ever since reading really captivating books at that age, I, I started I started writing novels. And so, I started writing little stories that then became novellas and, and you know, chapter sort of based books. And one of them in year four actually got to the point where my teacher was like, this is so good that you should actually put this on and, and turn it into a play. And so, with the help of the teacher, like I turned this little novel about, you know, four different connected individuals in different galaxies who were then transported all into one place for this, this higher sort of purpose, this sort of this grand narrative that I'd created. And um, the teacher helped me have the courage to like turn it into a play with, you know, with all the, the conventions of a written play. And I put on auditions at recess and lunch. And um, I had like literally my friends auditioning for things. And I don't think I was the, probably the most unbiased director at that stage. So, I probably gave all the parts to my favorite people in, in year five, as you probably would. But we then put it on and it was like a performance at the end. So, I could see my ideas sort of come into reality. And, you know, it's it's a it's a passion of mine, I think, to to write things that people want to read, um, whether that's through blog posts or whether it's through, um, you know, academic articles now. Like, I, I don't want to publish things or produce things that are boring and that, that don't fill a need that's there and whether that's a, an academic one or just for entertainment, I guess. So, yeah, um, writing is definitely a way to communicate with a wider audience and I'm really, I'm really all about that. Cool. So... From those uh, those early days, those early year four days, you've you've come a long way. You've done your PhD. You've have you written any books? No, but there's one in the works. There's one in the works. Yeah, a little bit of a 
hint for people. <laughs> you've def- definitely written a lot of curriculum resources and you, you've now found yourself moving into the higher ed space. I know you've done a bit of work there before, but mm. you've actually taken on a role at La Trobe University, which is a place that many of us in Australian education are pretty excited about at the moment because it's a university that's really, really focused and committed you know, with a, with a team like Joanna Barbusas, uh, Pamela Snow, Tanya Seri, Amanda mm. uh, McLean and yourself and, and many others to evidence-based practice. Do you want to tell us a little bit about, um, I guess, the decision to join La Trobe and what you're going to be doing in the next few years and what you're hoping to achieve there? Definitely. So, the last few years, my passion has really been about classroom practice and of, of from that um, original background that I had in linguistics and um, speech pathology and working with vulnerable youth, um, I, I've really discovered that my true passion lies in the classroom. It's ironic because my mum was originally the person in year 11 and 12 who said, you should really become a teacher. And I said, go, you know, stuff yourself, mum. Like, I don't want to be like you. And she was my, she was actually my year 10 and year 11 maths teacher at my school, which is, you know, always a bit awkward. But um, ironically, she was right. And, you know, after two working for many years in other spaces, classroom practice and becoming a teacher was really the best thing I could do because I have nothing more than passion and absolute commitment to um, working with teachers, being a teacher and and getting classroom practice to work. So, I had it in my mind that I'd just continue down that path um, and that I would work in schools for the next five years. And suddenly, there was this opportunity to come and work at La Trobe University where we are gathering a bit of a team and uh, a bit of an ex- uh, excitement, exciting movement towards implementing things like the science of learning and the science of reading. So, joining the solar lab with, with Pamela Snow and Tanya Seri and Tessa Weedman and, and many others, and under the directorship of um, our Dean, Joanna, um, who you mentioned, it's a pretty exciting time, I think. Like, w- we've got an opportunity to really shape the next generation of teachers in terms of giving them access to the, the kinds of knowledge that you, that you look at and your, your listeners would be familiar with in the kinds of experts you bring on. For too long, teachers have been separated from that sense of empirical research informing their practice. And um, we've got a really great opportunity now to change completely the way that we prepare teachers. And it's really exciting to be a part of that. Awesome. Couldn't agree more. And so, so today we're talking primarily, I mean, you've got finger in lots of different pies, Nathaniel, and you've done a lot of great things. And we will, we will kind of wind up the conversation towards the end. But just for the for the benefit of listeners, the origin of today's conversation was we were both down in Tasmania recently doing some presentations for um, Catholic Ed Taz, who's embarking upon a similar project to the Catalyst Project in Canberra, and they're calling it Insight down there. And we were both presenting on the launch day, and I I saw you present on writing, and I thought you had some really really valuable insights, both from a kind of theoretical basis, but also just really concrete practical applications for people. And so I thought, wow, this is something that I think it would be really valuable to share with ERRR listeners. And off the back of that, I was really keen to have you on to talk a little bit about writing. And then as I was kind of, as we were kind of discussing this interview, um, I, I looked a little bit more into your your work and specifically your resources uh, and your curriculum materials entitled right to learn. Could you give us a little bit of just an overview of like what's contained within right to learn, like maybe why why you started it and, and why also is it called right to learn? Yeah, sure. So, um, Right to Learn is, is basically a project that we worked on at my previous school, um, Brandon Park Primary, and we've been on a journey of, of implementing the science of reading and science of learning for the last few years, and writing was a bit of a weakness for us. Um, we've done a lot of work in the early reading space. Um, we've doubled in maths. Um, we've worked a lot on reading comprehension and, and trying to get that working really well, but writing was always an area where it, it's always it's a bit confusing in the space of, of what to do. Um, there's this push to say we want to get kids writing 
whole text and get them doing it early and and really trying to encourage them to write sort of whatever they want. Um, and, and that's the status quo in most schools. But we came across the writing revolution in, in our journey. And many of your listeners would be familiar with that with your fantastic interviews you've done in the past. But the writing revolution does something really different where it basically strips back all the things that teachers could think about when they're first introducing novices to the, the functions and the structure of writing and introduces it in a way that's really clear and succinct and allows them to develop uh, mastery of smaller chunks such as sentences and phrases and and paragraphs before they then have to tackle whole texts. So, Write to Learn for us was an opportunity to, I guess, turn the writing revolution approach, which exists as a set of training and a fantastic book that you can read into something that teachers could use on a day-to-day basis. And we wanted to marry it with our work in explicit instruction and sort of including those phases of the lesson within each day, but also honing down on the skills that um, the writing revolution holds really dear, such as commanding the sentence and and um, different kinds of conjunctions, positives, you know, the ability to combine sen- sentences together in a really um, artful way and sort of marry that with also the power, power of daily review and the opportunities to build skills across a long period of time. So we developed a scope and sequence. We started creating lessons that followed a a very similar structure in terms of the concept development and the skill development that was there. So we were setting students up for success when we were trying to do this rather than implementing it in a more like, I see how you go, like sort of haphazard um, way. And by the end of last year, when after we fully implemented the program, we've got a year's worth of materials for foundation to year six for every day, every lesson. And it's not to say that they're perfect, but they're a resource that we've created and that we feel passionate about trying to share with a wider audience because so much work has been put into it. And one of my favorite sayings, there's no point reinventing the wheel when it comes to curriculum resources. That's great. It's it's amazing how much you've put into it, Nathaniel, you and, you and the team at Brandon Park Primary, should I say. So, is the content in the program for listeners, is it just like the writing revolution fleshed out into full lessons or will people find other things in there as well? So, we've got the, the core of the writing revolution strategies within there and we've related it to the, the, the general approach of the writing revolution is that you introduce strategies in everyday sort of content. Sometimes that's called out of content. So, it's it's sort of simple sentences um, and we'll see an example of this a bit later where it, it the students don't have to know anything particular to use this strategy. They could write about their everyday experiences. And then we move from that into the in-content examples pretty quickly. So, the reason it's called Write to Learn is that there's a partner sort of curriculum set of resources called Read to Learn, which um, is all about knowledge building and vocabulary building around particular themes and, and topics. And we've used the core knowledge sequence and a lot of the materials from core knowledge to develop that, but applied the same explicit instruction and, and those important routines that we've we've learned along the way instructionally so that it's ready to teach. Similar to the writing revolution, core knowledge stuff is fantastic, but there's a lot of work on the teacher to turn that into a daily lesson or turn that into a weekly unit. So, we've, we've done a lot of that work and tried to make it as engaging and as um, stress-free to implement as possible so that the teacher can focus on what the students are doing. So, essentially, students build their knowledge and their vocabulary and their understanding of content in Read to Learn. And then after they've started to master some of the strategies in Write to Learn, they then begin to write about that content. So, we might, say, build up their knowledge of ancient Rome. They've got a um, history unit in year 
for and they learn about the, the amazing things that the Romans did. And then in the writing sessions, they they learn how to um, write a positives or they learn how to do single paragraph outlines where they, they, they plan and they implement a really strong paragraph. And instead of just writing about everyday things, which they do initially, eventually we move them towards writing about the stuff that they've learned. So it's called Write to Learn because through that writing process, they actually clarify and expand and solidify the knowledge that they've built in those reading comprehension lessons. That's great. And so, to kind of summarize what I heard there, you've built the writing revolution. I don't remember the term you used, but it's basically writing strategies and learning to write based upon knowledge that the students already have. Yeah. So, um, out of content or everyday content. Yep. Great. Thanks for that. Out of content or everyday content. And then write to learn is taking the writing revolution strategies and putting them into content. Yeah. And the writing revolution says to put things into content and to get them writing about the things that they're learning in the humanities, which is why Natalie Wexler as the co-author was made so much sense because she's written that amazing book that has highlighted the importance of knowledge, which is the knowledge gap. So the writing re- revolution says to do that. But um, when you read the book, the, it's not like there's a whole lot of lessons you can do to implement to see how that works. So the idea behind Write to Learn is that it shows people who are using it how you could embed it in the content that you're learning about with within your reading lessons, within literature, within history, geography, science, that sort of thing. Because it's crucial that students have an opportunity to write about the things that they're learning and not just write about personal experience, which is basically what teachers are taught to do with students for for most of the primary years. And it means that they tend not to learn as much from the writing process. They they tend to write the same pieces again and again. Mm. So, it it seemed to me looking through the Write to Learn resources that some of the strategies actually go beyond strategies in the writing revolution as well. So there are some that I that I do remember seeing in the writing revolution, such as you know correcting run on sentences. I remember there was something about that, but I don't remember anything about ving and ved clauses for example, in the writing revolution. Am I, am I correct? Yes. Look, we've we've gone further with, than some of the things that are in the writing revolution because we feel strongly about the kinds of constructions that students um, start to use in, in their writing. And V-ed clauses are, are basically a, a past participle clause that you would start with a verb essentially in the past tense and it would, it would add an extra clause into your sentence. So, for instance, you might have tired from the long day, Ollie relaxed on the couch. If only. Or you can put that at the end of the sentence. <laughs> um, Ollie relaxed on the couch, tired from the long day. So you could have written because he was tired from the long day, or you could have written Ollie relaxed on the couch, he was tired from the long day. But by putting in a VED clause, so v- a verb ED clause, you basically do a, a much more neat, succinct, but also slightly more poetic um, description. So it, it's a useful one, not just for nonfiction, but also for more fiction sort of based text where you're trying to get a sense of what the characters are feeling or saying or what they're thinking. So um, the VED clause does that. The VING clause does that as well. So that's verb ING, but it, it sort of has a slightly different sort of feeling because it's um, the present participle rather than the past participle. So, it might be jumping with excitement, the children exploded out of the door. So, you could say, you know, 
the kids were jumping with excitement, then they exploded out of the door. But you can hear that the first example is automatically much better. It creates a much clearer image. There's a sense of cohesion between the first idea and the second idea. And there's you, you don't have to add any extra words there. Sometimes you can use a conjunction because or so and things like that. But when you're trying to be more succinct and also slightly more poetic, the, these clauses can be really helpful. So I've, I've actually drawn upon some of my knowledge that I've developed in my linguistics degree in working with young people on their writing specifically and and said, well, this is something that we can apply and we can push them further because they've mastered co- conjunctions, they've mastered positives, they're doing all these great things that are from the writing revolution, but wouldn't it be nice if they started using these other constructions? And they're not hard to teach once you've got a really good framework for teaching it and, and that's where the explicit instruction comes in. Awesome. Fantastic. Before we jump into um, some of, like, I think that was a great practical ex- example and we're going to get into a little bit more of those kind of practical examples with Adnia, which is part of the podcast I'm really excited about um, this evening. And just a flag for listeners, if you haven't yet heard heaps about the writing revolution, we are going to go through it now. But I did have Dr. Judy Hockman on back in episode 29. And then I had Natalie Wexler on, the co-author of The Writing Revolution, to talk about the other book that Nathaniel talked about there, The Knowledge Gap, in episode 34 as well. So we'll link to both of those in the show notes. But for those who haven't had time um, to listen to either of those as yet, Nathaniel, could you just give us a little bit of a recap of some of the key principles of The Writing Revolution? I think what makes The Writing Revolution so unique and so special is that above everything else. It says that students aren't going to teach themselves how to write very well. If you leave it to chance, um, students will tend to write what they've always written or they'll write the way that they talk. And so, some students will come across nice ways of writing because of the reading that they do. So, your more avid readers and your more educationally advantaged peers will, will, you know, will write quite well. But unless we give them explicit instruction in writing, beginning in the early years, we're actually setting up a lot of our students to failure, um, for failure. So, I think that focus on explicit instruction is one of the key principles. The other one is the idea that sentences are the building blocks of all writing. With the reading side of things, you think of um, phonemes and graphemes and and vocabulary and comprehension and and fluency and things like that being the building blocks. For writing, until this was said, you know, I didn't ever connect this, but the building block of all writing is the sentence. And so, having students master the art of the sentence and also be able to write in a variety of different ways and, and finish their ideas in a variety of different ways actually just enables them to do so much more with their writing. And university students that we teach now, still, some of them have no concept of what a sentence is and how to ensure that their pieces of writing actually reflect good practice when it comes to finishing and ending and combining sentences. So, that's another key one. The other ones are about the the fact that we should embed content. You know, it's so tempting to get students to write about everyday experiences because that's been the push for so many years. You know, how was your weekend? What did you do on the holidays? What do you want to do when you grow up? All, All those nice things that are still good to write about. But when you embed content, so the lessons from history, you know, those fascinating topics about the places that you could go and, you know, the wonders of different, um, the seven wonders of the world or things that you really want students to get excited about, when you get them writing about it, it not only allows them to keep learning, but it also gives them an opportunity to clarify what they actually think and fill in the gaps. So, writing actually becomes a form of retrieval practice when you embed content in the writing sessions. So, it's a really powerful teaching tool and thinking tool, not just a tool for developing the writer's skill set. The other aspects are around 
that, you know, grammar has always been a bit of a question mark with the teaching of writing. We've seen grammar being taken out of classrooms for the last 30 or 40 years and sort of no, 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 don't teach um, subjects, don't teach predicates. It's all very boring. All they need to do is pick up a texter and sort of go go for it. What the writing revolution does really well is that it reflects reflects some of the latest research that says that teaching grammar without um, linking it to students' writing doesn't really work. So, just drilling them in grammar exercises or sentence diagramming isn't great. So, look, that's got a bad reputation for a reason. But um, what really does work is teaching grammar when it's in the context of student writing. So, if you're teaching students a subject and predicate because you want them to know how to finish their sentences and ensure that they don't have run-ons or fragments in their writing, then, you know, subject and predicate becomes really powerful and really useful. And the same with subordinating conjunctions. You don't just teach it because you want students to memorize all the subordinate conjunctions and what they do, you actually want to help them to see that these little bits of grammar actually can change their writing and can clarify their thinking. So, there's there's, some, there's conjunctions for reason, there's conjunctions for purpose, like in order to, there's conjunctions for conditions like if or not if, which is unless, you know, there's conditions for caveats and um, concessions like even though and although and things like that. So, conjunctions actually give students more of a, a, a tool set. And so, the way that the writing revolution does it is that it makes it really functional. So, you never learn something without putting it into your writing straight away. And the last two things in terms of the principles of the writing revolution and one of the reasons why we love it so much is um, because they, they emphasize that the two most important phases of writing are actually the planning phase and the revising phase. So, it's sort of thing, oh, the best part is the writing bit. And that's basically how it works in most classrooms at the moment is that you just get kids writing and you learn how to write by writing. That's the general gist of it. And we can thank balanced literacy for that essentially. But really, the planning phase where you organize your ideas, you, um, you, know, you source reasons, you, you put things in a logical order, you think about the structure is possibly the most important. And then soon after that is the revising process where you look back at your own writing and you revise it really, really succinctly and, and in really um, sort of harshly. You have to look back at your writing and think, okay, is this clear? Is this succinct? Does this make sense? And I like to say with my students that there's two different hats that you wear when you're writing versus when you're editing. So, you know, in the planning and the revising stage, it's this very, you know, you put on your green accountant's visor and you look over every single word um, and ensure that it needs to be there. Or in the planning stage, you, you say, oh, do I really need this paragraph or do I really need this um, sentence to get my idea across? Can I cut that idea? Because I don't want to just write for the sake of writing. And then in the rev revising stage, you look over every full stop and comma and, and semicolon, ensure that it's meant to be there and it's doing its job. But when you put on your writing hat, it's, you know, it's much more like a, I don't know, a thespian sort of beret or something like that. And you're going, oh, what do I, how do I want to get these ideas to come alive? And, you know, what's the best way of, the best vocabulary that's singing to me at this particular moment? And the reason why the planning and the revising are so important is because they anchor that you know, creative process so that you don't get students what many currently do now where they just write, write, write. And often there isn't any sentence structure because they haven't learned about sentences, but also because they haven't learned about planning and revising. So, um, the planning and revising act as like anchor points that say, well, yeah, you went a bit wild there. Your, your ideas went a bit crazy and, and that's good because you want your ideas to go into that sort of Zen mode when you start really free flowing. But then you have to put that visor back on and say, does that need to be there? And does that explain my idea the best possible way? Um, <laughs> one of my colleagues from Melbourne University who, who coached me through the three minute thesis competition, which is probably the, the most difficult writing experiment that I've ever done. And I was very privileged to win that at the Melbourne Uni competition back in 2016 or something like that, he basically said, look at your piece of writing, find your favorite sentences 
and then cut them. So <laughs> the idea is that the ones that you love the most, the ones that you're like, oh, I just love the way that I, you know, use that phrase and I use that bit of vocab and, you know, I linked in that idea together with this conjunction. They're the ones that the readers don't want to read. The ones that they want to read are the clearest, plainest, most succinct and the ones that um, don't have any frill or fluff. So th that was a really hard lesson to learn. But when you're writing all of your thesis in three minutes, it, you need a really good lesson like that. So you can be like, I really don't need that, you know, a side note about my favorite X or favorite Y, or I don't need this very long introduction to this sentence. I can just say this was this. And, you know, sometimes succinctness and, and the shortness of what you say is more powerful than a really long-winded section of your writing. So, um, that's the gist of it. I think um, the out of content in content thing is the last one. We've talked about all that already. Introduce things out of content in everyday situations so they can focus on the conjunction or the appositive or the paragraph writing strategy, write about things that they know, but then actually quickly embed them into the knowledge from the curriculum. There's no point writing essays upon essays about you know, why students should wear school uniforms or not. There's no real knowledge built in there. It's, it's a classic persuasive example. So, if you're going to do one of those as a practice for a persuasive, do that once, but then very quickly do something about the students actually have to know something and, you know, something from history, something from science, geography, the arts, something from civics where they can draw upon the, the content areas. And those principles really, I think, what make the writing revolution so revolutionary is that they, they strip things back to the point where teachers only have to focus on these main ideas and, you know, when they've created this structure and scope and sequence of how to, how to get students writing from... Um, phrases to sentences to paragraphs and texts, it really takes the burden off the teacher thinking, how do I best get my students to do X? You know, nine times out of 10, there's an answer for that in that book. That's great, Nathaniel. What a, what a whirlwind <laughs> and at the same time, both a thorough and concise summary of the writing revolution. That's absolutely fantastic. I found that, uh, that advice of find your favorite sentences and cut them to be quite interesting because, yeah. <laughs> because I mean, for me, my favorite sentences aren't the most flowery ones that I write. My favorite sentences are the ones like, you know, cognitive load theory is a collection of instructional recommendations based upon the science of how humans learn or the fundamental recommendation of cognitive load theory is to reduce extraneous loads and optimize intrinsic load, right? And there you go. You've, you've memorized them yeah, because they're your favorites. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, they're like the bulletproof definitions and they're like the, the ones that I labored over to clearly communicate in as few words as possible like the key ideas of whatever I'm trying to communicate. And maybe because you've had your green visor on and you've actually revisited those sentences so, so much and so, you know, harshly you've been, I have to get this exactly as clear and succinct as possible. And, you know, that bulletproof definition is, is key and that's an explicit direct instruction um, term if I'm not mistaken. And yeah, it's, a, it's interesting. I think if you get better at the editing process and you get better at revising, then maybe you don't get so attached to those flowery and, and long-winded sentences because I have a tendency you know early on in my academic career to write really long sentences and nothing changes your writing as much as a whole lot of red ink from Pamela Snow <laughs> <laughs> having your thesis pulled apart by someone as um, diligent and also dedicated as, as Pam really does make you think twice about do I really need that sentence and do I really do I really need to use that phrase so 
I think I think it's a bit of a journey as, as a writer when you think, well, what am I writing for? How do I improve my writing? I think Simon Clues is is the amazing educator who gave me that that tip about kill your darlings in terms of your your um, sentences. And I, I always think back on it because if I'm getting too esoteric, which is my tendency, I just need to be harsh and cut back and you know simplify it down without losing the richness because the condensed and purified form is really what we're looking for in great writing. Mm, that's great. I often think about advice in terms of who it's for and often the best advice, like there's no objective best advice, there's best advice for a certain person at a certain time. So, yeah, for someone who's, whose tendency is to go flowery and, and expand and expound, maybe the shorten it down is, is the advice. But for someone like myself who's like a bit clinical at times in my writing, sometimes it's like, oh, maybe you could bring in a bit more narrative or a bit more flair or something. I think you're right. And, you know, I think um, Simon's feedback might not have been so universal. It might have been for the the people in the competition who tended to waffle or tended to get really into the ideas and into the terminology and things. And sometimes you need someone to just, you know, you know, metaphorically slap you in the face and be like, we don't need that. We don't need all that extra bit. Like, you know, make it clearer, make it shorter. And for me, that really helped because if you find that balance between the sense of, you know, trying to grab the reader with the interesting language that you're using or, or the uniqueness of the the descriptions that you're giving mixed with the, I want this as clear and as concise and as bare bones as possible because people don't want to read difficult writing. They just don't want to read it. Mm. Yeah, t- totally. I think, I think also... An impressive writer can also do both. They can also show off that they can do both things. And one of the best examples that I came across of this recently, uh, I actually have a friend here in Melbourne who recently won thesis prize for history. He's doing his PhD. Um, I think it was it was a, it was a national thesis prize. And the, if people want to look it up, I'll put it in the show notes. His thesis is called "Mateship with Brumbies: Horses' Defiance and Indigeneity in the Australian Alps." It is absolutely fascinating, and it it draws this parallel. It, it talks about how Brumbies, um, you know, wild horses in Australia, have become this like almost legendary trope or idea that represents like wildness but also Australian bush at the same time as them actually being incredibly destructive to natural environments. And, and an introduced pest in many ways, isn't it? And an introduced pest. And and, he, and one of the core things that he explores in the es- essay is the way in which white settler Australians attach themselves to Brumbies and like build up this idea of Brumbies as being like sacred as a way to justify their own existence on Indigenous land. It's like super, super interesting. But within the essay, he does two things. One is he explains a whole heap of really complex ideas and historical and sociological theories in really, really clear terms. But at the same time, he also has a number of really cool punchy but also flowery sentences that are just absolutely fantastic and when just before when you were saying like sentences you didn't actually use the phrase sentences king today but you used it in tassie and i remember that that's a common phrase that i do say yeah 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 exactly but i thought when you started talking about the importance of the sentence or the sentence of the building block of writing i i thought back to this sentence from simon and i just want to share it because it's just great Like an exposed cliff face of sedimentary rock that reveals the geological past of a landscape, we see in Maguire's statement the historical layers of his anxiety. 
Mm. It's just like it's just painted. It's just a metaphor that he's using basically to make that work. And it's one sentence, but it does so much in one sentence, doesn't it? Exactly. And it's like, and it's also like, it's like a sass on this guy. It's like, show, you know, mm. we see his statement reveal historical layers of his anxiety. Mm. And, you know, he's a white seller Australian that Simon's having a crack at. But it's also done in such a beautiful, flowery way. Uh, so good. Also, I really like, you know, the two points that you use to bookend that summary of the writing revolution. The, the sentence is the, in the, like you. Building block of writing. Yeah, and so the planning planning first because you want to have a good idea of what those sentences are going to be and how they're going to fit together into a paragraph or a text and then the revising and editing on the other side, definitely. Yeah, that's right. So, sentences are the building block of writing and then at the end you talked about how planning comes first and then the revising at the end. And I just thought that, I mean, that comes together so well to summarise what the process of good writing. It's like plan, get your ideas in order, work out what you're going to say. Yeah, and let loose a little bit. Yeah, that's yeah. really putting it together and then they're revising and it's kind of like work out what you're going to say, say it well, and then- Fix it. Cut the fluff. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Basically, to use an archerism and an archerism. Yeah. Teach your stuff and cut the fluff. Mm. It's it's like such a great such a great summary. And then there's all those other layers in there, of course, as well. Um, could you just give us that because you kind of, I imagine you have a dot point list in front of you of those key points, the writing revolution. Would you just read them? through them for us in the dot point form as a bit of a summary before we move move on to the next portion of the interview. Sure. The main principles of the writing revolution are that students actually need explicit instruction in writing beginning in the early years. The idea that sentences are king, they're the building blocks of all writing. When embedded in the content of learning and the areas of the curriculum, such as history, geography, and science, writing instruction is actually a powerful teaching and thinking tool, not just a, a, a means and to, an ends in and of itself. The content of the curriculum should drive the writing activities. The next one is grammar is best taught in the context of student writing. Um, then the, the two most important phases of the writing process are planning and revising. And then the last one, Always introduce new writing strategies in everyday ideas, so that's out of content, and then quickly embed them into the knowledge from the curriculum, which is in content. That's great. Thanks, Nathaniel. And just one final comment on that, the importance of revision. A little behind-the-scenes look at my second book, Tools for Teachers. I actually threw out over 110,000 words of writing to end up with only about 65,000 words, I think, for that book. And I, it was my fifth version of the book that ended up going out. So that's a, a bit of an illustration of like what cutting the fluff could look like for people, I guess. Hopefully I cut the fluff and there's not too much fluff left in there anyway. It's certainly not a fluffy book in any any sense of the word. I think that, that says a lot though because my style of writing is very similar. I tend to write much more than I will ever need. And it's through the writing process that you actually clarify your thinking. And once you've actually written it, you can then be like, oh, I, I sort of get what I'm talking about there. Like you, you clarify it for yourself as a thinker. And then because you've written it, you can look at it and be like, okay, I can get that across in less words. So I can end up cutting this chapter or I can cut that paragraph or I can cut this example. Or if it's in a more minute level, minute level, I can say, I can say that paragraph in one sentence. 
So uh, I think there is a certain level of redundancy that happens in the writing process, which is why the editing process is so important. And the first version that you write is never going to be your best work. It's just your first attempt to capture what's in your brain and put it into words. By committing it to paper, you you know, and, and the same thing is this when you when you have a podcast interview like this, like you actually are forced to articulate what's been bubbling away in your brain potentially and put it down either on recording or on paper. And that process makes you see that it's either really great and it's like, oh, that was a bit of genius there. Or it's like, oh, I could have said that really a lot more clearly. I don't know what I think till I see what I say. That was a a phrase from one of my mentors at uni passed down to him by one of his mentors. And I think it's it's another way of um it's another sentence that summarizes some of what you're saying there. Is that an unattributed quote? Like, do you, is it got a source? Or cause that's a nice one. I think I chased the source up once, but I don't recall it. Right. I think I just chased it up by Googling it. So, I, I think it's possible to find it, but uh, we'll try to include it in the show notes as well. Yeah, cool. I like it. Let's jump into a little bit of Right to Learn, Nathaniel. So, I've given you a challenge tonight or today, depending on when people listen to this podcast. I have invited you to teach me how to write. (laughs) And unfortunately, Nathaniel, as you know, because I had to throw out 110,000 words, I have this horrible habit of writing run-on sentences. Okay. Run-on sentences are sentences where I keep on saying things and I don't really stop. And even if I should stop, I don't really stop anyway. And I don't know how to stop. And it's hard. It's terrible. (laughs) It doesn't end. (laughs) So, I need some help, Nathaniel. Can you please help me, one, identify what they are and two, work out how to stop them? Sure. I'm going to share my screen so you can have a look as well. Okay. So, for listeners, what what Nathaniel's doing is he's pulling up a lesson plan from Write to Learn and Nathaniel might tell us a little bit about this lesson plan, where it sits in the sequence and things like that. And then I'm going to be a student, Nathaniel's going to be a teacher and we're all going to be students, in fact, listeners Mm. and welcome to the, the classroom of Dr. Swain. All right, guys. So, today our learning goal is I will identify and correct run-on sentences. So, Ollie, we're going to read a definition of what a comma is. So, can you say this after me? A comma is a punctuation mark. A comma is a punctuation mark. Used to separate parts of a sentence. Used to separate parts of a sentence. And just for listeners as well, we're doing this in a way that I'm at. Usually, obviously, there's a whole slideshow that goes with this and I would actually be able to read with Nathaniel. But because you're all listening without a slideshow in front of you, we've decided to get Nathaniel to try to teach me off the slides without me seeing them so that my experience is the same as yours, dear listeners. Um, so, that's why it's slightly different to how it would be in a classroom. And off we go. So, um, to explain this, commas are actually not strong enough to join sentences together. And on the slide here, I've got a picture of a guy trying to lift a, a um, set of weights and he just can't do it. So, commas are not strong enough to join sentences together. So, I've got an example here and I want you to vote yes or no if the comma has been used correctly. So, here we go. Australia is the sixth largest country in the world, comma. It is made up of states and territories. Has the comma been used correctly or not? Yes or no? I think it's trying to join two sentences together maybe and it's not strong enough, so maybe no. No, that's correct. So, you've actually got a run-on sentence there um, because Australia is the sixth largest country in the world. Should be a full stop. There's, doesn't, it's not continuing. If we The next sentence is, it is made up of states and territories. It's a completely new idea, new sentence. But it's a very common thing that you see in students writing. So, no, it has not been joined correctly. So, let's talk about a run-on sentence and give you a definition. A run-on sentence is two or more clauses that are joined incorrectly 
in one sentence. So how can they be joined incorrectly? They might not be separated by a full stop or they might not be separated by a conjunction that would otherwise help to join those two sentences together. So the example is Mount Everest has the highest elevation of any mountain in the world, comma, it's also located in the Himalayas. How would you fix that run-on sentence, Ollie? I don't know. <laughs> so this is like, we're a bit halfway through the unit here. So it's sort of a bit of a review. So I would have given you some more strategies to do this at this point. We're going to launch into some harder run-ons in a second. So this is, uh, students would have a, a background to this at this point. But the, the options that you've got are, use a full stop to create two sentences. That's A. B, use the conjunction and to create a compound sentence. Or C, nothing, a comma is fine. So the sentence was, Mount Everest has the highest elevation of any mountain in the world, comma, it's also located in the Himalayas. What do you think? Well, we're kind of just adding some info. So it's like, I feel like the and is probably a good, good option there. Yeah. So if, it's, if it reads like that, so Mount Everest has the highest elevation of any mountain in the world and it's also located in the Himalayas. And if I was in a different lesson, I would actually change that even further. So putting a ved clause at the front would actually make the sentence a lot better. So let's hear the result. Located in the Himalayas, Mount Everest has the highest elevation of any mountain in the world. So you can see how once you've mastered fixing run-ons and you do the ved unit, so verb ed unit, um, you can actually make that sentence even better than just the and there. So that was a little check for understanding. Dear listeners, if you're finding this discussion stimulating and you'd like to be able to easily refer back to and remember some of the most valuable takeaways from our discussion, why not consider becoming a patron of the ERRR podcast? Patrons are listeners who contribute a monthly donation to support the ongoing production of the show and, in return, receive a summary each month of the key takeaways from the episode. Patrons also receive access to an interactive transcript of each episode, meaning that if you'd like to listen back to a specific part of the episode, you can simply do a word search for a key term, then be taken directly to the spot within the podcast and listen back at the convenient click of a button. This episode's summary will include what makes good writing, Nate's summary of the key ideas of the writing revolution, ideas for correcting run-on sentences, thoughts and advice on writing more broadly, as well as a few insights from my own writing experience and projects. At higher tiers, ERRR supporters also have access to a members-only podcast with special insights and episodes that go beyond the standard ERRR. Clip requests of your favourite episode segments and even the opportunity to personally connect with me to discuss teaching and learning. So if you'd like an actionable summary of this episode of the ERRR podcast, to explore the additional benefits such as the members-only podcast, and if you'd like to support the ongoing production of the show, simply go to patreon.com forward slash ERRR and sign up to support the show for as little as the price of a cup of coffee per month. That's patreon.com forward slash ERRR to support the show and help to keep it sustainable for the long term. Now, let's jump straight back into this episode of the ERRR podcast. If there's some more means of participation in these slides, feel free to like narrate what the, what they would be like if you'd get students. Yeah. So that was a multi-choice for instance. Yeah. 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 So this one is a whiteboard example. So um, again, if we were in person and, and using whiteboards, I'd get you to write your response to this and students would do this. And this is a guided practice um, part of the lesson. We've just reviewed the concept of, an, of a run-on. Now we're going to how to correct a run-on sentence is what we're doing. So I've got another sentence to read to you here. This one I'm going to fix first. So this is the I do, and then you're going to do the next one. So your example on the whiteboard. The first step is to read the sentence aloud. The second one is to figure out if it's a run-on or not. 
The third step is to add punctuation or a conjunction and then to make sure this, the clauses have been separated. So this is a routine that we've built with students and now we've got a clunky sentence that's very similar to what the students are writing and the students are going to fix it. So have a listen to this. Magma is extremely hot liquid rock under the earth's surface, comma. When magma flows onto the earth's surface, comma, it's called lava. So that's one sentence, but I'm guessing that you can hear that it shouldn't be. So this is what it should be like. Magma is extremely hot liquid rock under the earth's surface, full stop. When magma flows onto the earth's surface, comma, it's called lava. And on the slides, we actually have that fixed example there that the, the teacher has put in so they can see how to fix it. Now here's a similar example that you're going to fix. So it goes, Denali is the highest mountain in North America, comma, it's not the highest mountain in the world. I wonder if you can um, fix that run on sentence for us. I'd probably say, but. Aha. Uh -huh. And that would be a very good conjunction. So you'd say Denali is the highest mountain in North America, but it's not the tallest mountain in the world. Much better. So for students, what they're learning here is that when you have a run on, it's not like you have to abandon the ideas altogether. You can actually fix it with either a full stop or a conjunction quite easily. And students get a sense of, of how to actually spot the run-ons, which is often the hardest bit. They can't tell when they're doing a run-on when they're not. And they also figure out strategies for fixing them. So that's one of the ones that I've got there. And I've got another example here um, that would do something similar. And then we have a relevant slide. So I'd say to the students, when writing, we should always try to use correct grammar and punctuation. Otherwise, we end up with run-on sentences that don't really make sense or sound strange to the reader, which is what we found with those examples before. So run-on sentences can usually be corrected by using the correct punctuation or including a conjunction. And then the independent practice task for today, you would have four sentences that you need to fix. I'm going to do one of the short ones for you just for the listeners. See if you can fix this one using those strategies that you've done. Pretend that you'd be doing this independently as I roam around the room. So the sentence is, the technology we have today has helped us to solve many problems, comma, but our waste problems have multiplied. So you have to figure out if it's a run-on sentence, if it is a run-on to fix it, if it's not a run-on, you can leave it. What do you think, Ollie? That one seemed all right to me. And that would be correct. So that one's actually not a run-on. So there's two things that students are doing here. They're making sure they don't accidentally fix sentences that are actually fine, but then they're also going back and, and teasing apart the ones that are run-ons. So just try this one so we can see the difference. Humans have learned how to deal with waste over many years, comma, waste is still an ongoing problem that humans face. What would you do there? I'd probably use a however. Oh, yeah. So with a however, you'd need to put either a full stop after years or a semicolon because as we discovered when we started doing this properly, however is not a conjunction. It's actually a conjunctive adverb. So it starts a new sentence or if you really want to be connective, you can use a semicolon because it acts almost like a full stop there. So you'd go, humans have learned how to deal with waste over many years, full stop or semicolon. However, it's still an ongoing problem that humans face today. And that's how you join it together. Another question for you. After that, however, I would put a comma usually. Yes, you have to put a comma. No, conjunctive adverbs have a comma after them. Um, subordinating conjunctions don't have a comma before them. Um, coordinating conjunctions like but and so and for and and they all have conjunctions before them. So there's rules there that we teach students deliberately um, so that they can get the differences between those things. So in the writing revolution, they call the conjunctive adverbs like however and therefore um, transition words. With our students, we tend to call them transition words as well. But for the teachers, we use the proper linguistic term because we want to make sure we're telling the difference between a conjunction and a conjunctive adverb. The beautiful thing about a conjunctive adverb though as well is that you can move it around the sentence. So if you wanted to put however there, you could also say humans have learned how to deal with waste over many years, 
Waste is still an ongoing problem that humans face, however. So that, however, can be moved and it can actually be put in the middle of the sentence as well as the end. So that's the beauty of adverbs. That sounds a bit weird though. Well, it depends on the flow of the sentence. So if you don't like it there, Ollie, we could put it in the middle of the sentence. So we could go, humans have learned how to deal with waste over many years. Waste is still an ongoing problem, however, that humans face today. Okay. I, I prefer waste is, however. Oh, yeah, that would work too. Waste is, or you say waste, however, is still an ongoing problem. Yeah. That's, in, that's interesting. I didn't know you could, I mean, I, I obviously knew you could do that, but I didn't know you could do that, if that makes any sense. So, con- conjunctive adverbs, they're, they're really cool because conjunctions have to be in there between the boundary of the first sentence and the second sentence or the second clause, but conjunctive adverbs can be moved around. So, that's why you can hear therefore in the middle. You know, you might say like, you know, writing is really hard. Students have to work every day, therefore, to make their writing better. Can you put it anywhere? <laughs> anywhere except in the middle of certain phrases. So, you couldn't be like, students have to, oh, yeah, this is like split infinitives. Don't put it between the two and the verb, which is called a, a um, infinitive. So, you shouldn't be able to say, you shouldn't say, students have to therefore um, work hard every day. That's like the, the, the old to boldly go where no one goes before. It's, it's breaking that old grammar rule of splitting the infinitive. So, technically, you're not meant to put it there, but you actually still hear it. You hear that sometimes. Students have to therefore work every day. Like people do say that in conversation, but technically, you're not meant to do that. But, you know, there's, there's grammar rules that are traditional and then there's grammar that's accepted now through repeated use. So, those, those rules of grammar actually change as we use words every day. Like, for instance, this is something my English teacher did in year eight and I've never forgotten it. You shouldn't use the word so if you're wanting to finish a sentence like Ollie loved hosting his his show so much. So you shouldn't finish the sentence there because when you use so before a word like much or so many, you actually need another clause after it. So you meant to say something like Ollie loved his show hosting his show so much that he did it every month. So without the the clause there beginning with that, um, that sentence isn't technically complete. But you hear people use that all the time. It's like, oh, it's so boring or, oh, I'm so over this. So even though that's technically grammatically incorrect, over time that's going to be fine because people are using it so much that, (laughs) you know, they don't even notice that it's a problem. It might be only really formal academic settings like the editors at The Age or The Australian or something pick it up and be like, that shouldn't be there because that's not formal enough. What is an infinitive? So, an infinitive is the form of the verb where it's like the dictionary form. So, in the dictionary, you've got verbs um, in there. They're never going to be in the past tense or the present tense, though. They're going to be in the infinitive form, which is like the base form of the word. So, when it's got a two in front of it, we call it a two infinitive. So, for instance, in the book, you might have play um, or to play. In the dictionary, you might have work. It won't be worked or works. It's always going to be just the base form. And when it has the two in front of it, it can do different things in the sentence. So, for instance, you might have um, a sentence like, you can have a two infinitive clause that starts with this construction. So, you'd be like, to cook on a Saturday night is always my preference. So, you start a clause with that to and then the verb and you actually create a new construction rather than saying like cooking or um, I like cooking on a Saturday night. It's my preference. So, you can say that, you know, those ways of um, using grammar in, in a sort of slightly more sophisticated way is just give students more options. We don't have a unit on two infinitives, but um, through the process of reading more texts and, and highlighting things, there's, there's going to be students 
students who work through these materials with right to learn for instance that will pick that up and be like what's that and you know they'll look up other um, clauses like interrogative clauses that start with a question word like i'm looking for whoever is responsible so that clause whoever is responsible is actually like a mini sentence but it starts with a question word like a wh word like whoever or who or when so you know i love whatever i can get um, my hands on or i've forgotten where i left my shoes so where i left my shoes is actually its own little clause i've forgotten is the the um first part of that sentence but it needs something afterwards to say what you forgot so i you could say i forgot my shoes or you could put an interrogative clause in there which some of our students have you know picked up and be like oh that's that's not a a relative clause like we've learned about and that's not a subordinate conjunction what's going on there and some of our teachers will go i don't know and you know we'll conference and figure out what it is and that linguistic background does help because you can then answer any student questions so i forgot where my shoes are is actually a more sophisticated way of saying i forgot my shoes i don't know where they are which you could say in two different sentences there mm. and so is it also incorrect to just say i forgot well, that's an interesting one. I remember in year five, I used to hear people saying like, I forget all the time. They say, you know, the teacher will be like, um, where's your where's your water bottle? And they'll be like, oh, I forget. And when I heard that, it always grated me. I, I must have had this grammar instinct when I was younger of being like, that doesn't sound like that. That's not complete. And that idea has like stuck with me for years. And so, I really wanted them to say like, I forgot, as in like in that moment, I forgot. So, it's not technically incorrect to say like, I forgot because um, forgot is actually what's called a diatransitive verb. It's a verb that can either have an object. So, I forgot my shoes or it could be no object. So, it can be like a, um, it's called an intransitive verb. It doesn't have anything. So, you can, I sleep, I forgot, I woke, that sort of thing. It doesn't have an object in it. So, I f- um, forgot is one of those verbs that could either be intransitive, they don't have an object, or it could be transitive, it does have an object. Mm. Back to the infinitives. Yeah. Gonna, <laughs> just to speak on them for an infinity time. Um, what did I do wrong there? When I said, in, I just want to keep testing your linguistic knowledge. No, test me, test me, test me. Well, I, I was just like, I was like, to talk about that for infinity time, What's wrong with that? Infinity time. So, you're trying to do, if you put uh, infinity in front of another noun, it doesn't always work unless you're making a compound word. So, if you wanted to make that work, it would be infinite time because you turn the infinity into its adjective form and then you've got a nice construction there, which is adjective noun. Or I could say infinity minutes. I don't think you could. (laughs) I think you have to say infinite minutes or minutes to infinity or ad infinitum if you want to go Latin. Because infinity is a noun already. I was thinking about like measurable things because, or like countable or non-countable because often that influences what has to come before it as well. It does, yeah. So, I was wondering if minutes, because minutes are countable, I was wondering if I could say infinity because infinity is like a number. So, I could say like 10 minutes and so, why couldn't I say infinity minutes but infinity maybe itself is already Maybe it's what you said, infinity itself is already a noun. It's already a noun. It's already a concept. Whereas, yeah, so the numbers like one to infinity, except for the number infinity itself, are actually their numerals, which operate a little bit differently. So, you can say I have 10, in which case it's operating more, more like a noun because the, the, the 10 is the thing that you've got in that sentence, it's the object. Or you can say I have 10 buttons. And in that case, it's acting more like determiner. So, there's a 
determiners like um, the and are and he, uh, hers, uh, sorry, her and his, you can also have numeral determiners as well. So it says how many of them. And interestingly with English, I don't know if you want to go down this path, but English, with English, it's got this amazing- We're already a long way down the path. <laughs> it's got this amazing thing where there's actually a particular order that adjectives and determiners have to take. So, mm, you know, okay. you, you, yeah, it's a great one. So you can have this incredible length of adjectives that come before the, the, the actual head noun of the phrase, but they have to follow a specific order and numerals have to be right up the front like it can't be just before so you can't say there was a big scary 10 mon- monsters I'm sorry there were big scary 10 monsters it doesn't work you have to say there were 10 big scary monsters and if you wanted to add color in there black would have to fit in a certain order as well so there were 10 big black scary monsters so it have to be big first because size becomes before color so um that's a really interesting one. So those the the number or the the numeral there, which is a, like a determiner, has to be right near the front after the article, which is the or a. Yeah, and you can't say there were ten scary black big monsters. It's just it's just wrong. No, it doesn't work. Size has to come much earlier than that. It's bizarre, bizarre that it exists. It's a weird thing, but it's it's what you're tapping into there. I think Ollie is that um, as you know, as speakers of a language, and the students that we teach that have English as their first language, they'll have a stronger intuition about grammar. So, what the things like writing revolution and what we're trying to do with the additions in right to learn is help teachers tap into that intuitive sense, but then also give them us you know a structure to try and understand why it's right and why it's not quite right. Because some students will just get it right and they'll be like oh that doesn't look right and they'll fix it others will never get there unless they have some sort of explanation so it's not good enough sometimes for teachers to be like that doesn't make sense it it has to be like this if you upskill yourself as a teacher and using materials like this can help then you can have much better explanations that actually stick for students if you're able to explain to the student who keeps getting the order of adjectives wrong that actually um, number has to come first and then size and then color and then qualities and other things that follow, then they're going to get it right because they, they can follow that formula. Whereas if you just tell them that, oh, that doesn't sound right, uh, you know, the, the 10 has to come much earlier, then that's not going to really stick. Mm. It is interesting though because for them to get to the point where they can actually write fluently, it actually has to become automa- automatized and feeling-based for them. Yes, it does. So, it is a question for me like because it's – been my experience that like in Mandarin, I never learned grammar. I probably had made a lot of grammatical errors, but the things that I said correctly were the things where I kind of basically memorized the sentence structure and then subbed in and out words. And I could say like, I could say things correctly, basically. And you just, I built, built up this corpus of sentence structures, which I knew were grammatically accurate and that I could then deploy to communicate certain things. And if I tried to took like a grammatical rules approach, it just wouldn't work because I'd like be standing there like trying to do some mental gymnastics to work out some word order and it just wasn't a sustainable approach. And so, the, the, the only two – I'm really curious to hear your thoughts on this. The only two methods I found that really worked were one, like m- heaps of exposure to stuff so your brain can just do some statistical – what's called statistical learning and just collect stuff and spit out stuff. And then you get that sense of that doesn't sound right or that does sound right or memorize sentence structures and deploy them. And so I'm not sure that in the like big black scary monster example, learning this order of the adjectives would help anyone ever, but I maybe I'm wrong. Well, the, I think the point there is that like the writing revolution really emphasizes you would teach it explicitly initially 
but the actual learning happens from doing a lot of writing and from fixing your own writing. So the, what we've seen in our own students at Brandon Park and, and other schools that have, have used this approach, it's not the, the explicit part of the lesson that makes it click for students. It's, you know, that's just a gateway to get them cued into it and, and to have a, a way of giving them prompts when they're going through the writing process. So by them experimenting and fixing writing or, you know, doing short exercises or activities that help them to get the order of adjectives, for instance, right, if that was a, a thing, maybe in an, in an English learner's classroom, then it's that process of fixing it or by generating their own examples that follow that pattern that and that trial and error that would actually make it click for them. So in some ways, you've taught them a bit of a sentence frame you've given them a structure and in many ways they're, they're deploying that as you said but um, the explicit aspect is saying well there's a reason that the 10 has to be there and for some students that really will make it work same as with run-ons you can get students to fix run-ons until they're blue in the face but if they don't know what a sentence is and if they don't can't actually have a rule that they can check um, when they look at their writing and say, well, is that is that a subject? Is that a predicate? Okay, that's the end of the sentence, which is what they learn to do before they do this run-on unit is figure out what the subject is and what the predicate is and, and, and see when the end of the sentence should be. Then, you know, they'll just be guessing at it and they'll be looking at their own writing thinking, oh, I probably should put a full stop there. But we've seen some um, really funny, before we did this really well at, at our school, we saw some really funny examples of students just putting full stops everywhere. Like, you know, year one's been like, okay, I know I need to put full stops in. I'm just going to put them in wherever. And, you know, they'll put them in after the subject of the sentence or they'll put them in after the adjective or, you know, they'll just randomly chuck them in because they didn't have enough statistics of, of the exposure, but also enough awareness of what, what is a rule I could use to check until this does become automatic. And I think the other power of the writing revolution is that you do this so well and in such a... Um, in many ways, this is, it becomes a bit of a routine that you follow that eventually you're not thinking about it anymore. You know, you're, you're writing in, su in such a way and, you know, you, you have an instinct as a writer to use a ving or a ved clause because it just feels right. And you've done so much practice of it before that it, it feels natural to combine two sentences together in that way because it's, it's going to communicate your ideas more fully. Mm. That's great. And I think probably, probably one of the issues for me when learning foreign languages is like I haven't actually really used writing to do it at all. Right. And so, where you know, your whole program is called- Right to Learn. Right to Learn, right? Yeah. And also probably I haven't been able to access sufficiently well-structured programs that incrementally introduce me to grammatical structures in a way that I don't get overloaded. Because a lot of the resources out there that are for learning foreign languages, they expect a certain baseline level of knowledge of linguistic terms, like lots of the terms like infinitive predicate yeah, yeah. And 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 um, people who've learned English as a second language will be used to all that terminology and will know it more than English speakers because that's the way that they've had to learn it as a as an adult speaker. Yeah, yeah, likely. But I don't I don't have that knowledge. You didn't have that you don't have that knowledge. Yeah, exactly. So trying to use that is just like cognitive overload to the max because I'm trying to learn two things at the same time. But also I was interested that you said that people who learn English as a second language would need to use that. And I guess they they would they maybe would to an extent, but they only would to the extent that our students need it themselves. Yeah. So, students, if they are making um, errors with something like adjective order, which for L1 speakers of English, they would have an intuitive sense that that just sounds right because they've been combining adjectives together or hearing adjectives combined together in those adjective chains is what they're called for, you know, since they were two-year-olds sitting in and listening to, to books or hearing adults going on big rants about something. They put all these adjectives in a row. I can't believe that um, stupid, ridiculous, terrible, you know, that, you know, they've heard those adjective chains in conversation 
conversation and in books. So there is the statistics that they've taken on that, that something just sounds right and they don't need to learn it explicitly. But if you've just been introduced to adjective chaining, which might not be a feature of their L1 and, and you're now learning it in your second language, which is English, the scaffold would act as a really good um, anchor point to be like, oh, I have to remember that number first, size, then uh, color and then quality, et cetera, et cetera. And we have been going off on a massive tangent, but I guess one of the main one of the main things that I'm taking away from this massive tangent or set of collection of tangents is that providing the structure and the explicit instruction is the base, but then crucially, what needs to be laid on top of that is sufficient practice to get kids to automaticity and then more repetition of that over time in more complex contexts. So you're building you're incrementally building these writing skills until the writing skills are then embedded and then you use the embedded writing skills to like learn learn content as well. So this is, I mean, this is something we both talk about a lot in our PD that we run, I'm, I'm sure, you know, just that importance of getting to automaticity to take the load off working memory so that, you know, we can achieve higher and higher levels of, of, of achievement. And I think it's exposing students as well to those different structures and in their own writing, they'll choose whatever, what makes sense to them. When they're in that Zen mode of I've done my planning, I'm now in the, the, the mode of turning these ideas into sentences, they're going to use the whatever constructions they think of. Sometimes we, we put prompts on, say, a paragraph and be like, you know, it would help if you use in a positive here or it's a good idea to use a subordinate conjunction in this sentence. And sometimes that really helps the learners that tend to write the same sorts of sentences again and again. But in the end of the day, in an unstructured task, they're going to use what feels natural and they're going to use whatever comes together but the beauty of these approaches is that you actually start to embed different ways of organizing your ideas cognitively not just um, in how you you sort of express those ideas down on paper so we you know the more research into this space I think would be really helpful but I hypothesize that it actually helps students to clarify the connections between ideas and articulate their own views on ideas as well in a way that you know just getting them to go off and and write without that structure initially um, probably doesn't allow every student to reach so it, it is it's about automaticity but then it's also about like all we've given you is structure you can fill that in any way possible with all the content and also the manipulation of those structures so um, students come out with really novel things and be like oh what is that and they don't really know what they've written but they they sort of like how it sounds because they've become a lot more familiar with how you can play with English and express ideas in different ways and how those choices as a writer can operate at a grammatical level but eventually you know it, it can operate at a a non-literal level as well. It'd be like, oh, I could express that in more of an analogy or I could do a metaphor or a simile. And, and that's really where we want students to get to is that sentences become so automatic and so easy for them that they're really just focusing on the effect of their writing and the choices of vocabulary that that might explicate their ideas better than, than it otherwise would. So that's really the sweet spot when you've embedded so much of, of this instruction to automaticity and that sense of intuition as a writer, that um, their focus and their working memory can actually be devoted to other things which are more important eventually. That's great. I'm wondering what role you think reading plays. If we think about, I mean, I was I was never taught how to write really. I just remember being like set writing tasks and then given feedback, which I didn't think was very helpful and also as a result didn't pay much attention to. That's essentially the story of my English education, I would say, I think that I learn how to write by re- reading stuff. And I'm wondering the role that you feel that plays. Can can someone become 
a good writer who has an ability to phrase things in different ways, really grab the reader, you know, to go back to your your definition of good writing before, to be succinct, to be right, to match the genre, to really grab the reader and to show novelty and uniqueness through, you know, could a year six student get to that kind of point if they never read a book themselves and if they just went through a really good writing program? And do you think a good writer is only really created from being a good reader? I think it's a it's a mix of both. I think it's certainly possible to be an avid reader and through that process of being exposed to all those kinds of uses of language and, and grammatical constructions and vocabulary that you basically intuit the writing process and, and, and how you can express your ideas in different ways. I know that in my own childhood, I would copy and mimic the kinds of writing that I would read. And um, that would happen at an ideational sort of level in terms of what the themes were about and, and maybe the twists in plot, but also at the sentence level. I know that I'm, I can see examples of different uses of um, adverbs or um, adverb, uh, fronted adverbials and things like that that would appear in my grade five writing that I've still got samples of. But I know that if I was given an approach like this, where it's the writing revolution or, you know, right to learn, which is a, an application of that, I feel like my own writing would have just I would have found my voice as a writer a lot quicker. You know, I know that the, the, the years in secondary school where we were asked to do creative writing, I always found the creative writing at that older sort of stage a lot harder because I think I was aware of, of how um, good some writers are and I had read so much. And it's intimidating to think I could never write like that. But these approaches, I think, allow those students who are already doing well to have a much more explicit awareness of, of how they can manipulate language for their purposes and also for those lower readers and, and writers that wouldn't have gotten there by themselves. And I've, I've, I've had that experience that you've had of just being assigned writing. And if they're not an avid reader, have not had a lot of exposure to academic writing. So, essentially write the way that they speak or the way that they hear spoken language happening, which is not the same level of, of um, sophistication or the same conventions that, that we, we need to be able to use as writers um, to manipulate. So, th- this approach levels the playing field in my mind. It lifts the students that would have gotten there anyway and, and gives them an explicit awareness of things that they could choose and use as, as writers, but it, it gives the foundations and the, the leg up that those students that are currently coming off a lower base to then be able to express themselves on an equal playing field. And I think that's the power of it. And like all of our approaches that align with the science of learning, it, it's really about harnessing the innate abilities that, that, to, um, that students have to learn from experts and to guide novices to becoming intermediates and then experts themselves. And I think that's the, the real key is to break the whole process, whether it's writing or reading down, into manageable chunks and giving them lots of practice to master those. And because then eventually it becomes a given and you can be like, okay, everyone, you've mastered how to write paragraphs. That's fantastic. You know how to do it. You know how to make them great. Your sentences shine, etc. What we really need to do is um, find the best evidence to back up your ideas. You know, what they tend to do in secondary school, they do a lot of focus on evidence and examples and things like that. But often they do that in secondary school without that backbone of solid sentences. So, secondary teachers will often bemoan, how do they, you know, what do they learn in primary school? How are they getting to this stage in year eight and year nine where they can't write a sentence and they can't finish a paragraph or they're, they're doing all one paragraph pieces, you know, three pages long with no paragraphs in them and no sense of structure. And the reason is because if you haven't been taught those structures and also supported to practice those structures, you're going to write the way that you talk, which doesn't have all those markers of paragraphs and and sentence boundaries and punctuation and necessarily strong transition words. We sort of tend to to speak in a run-on, if that makes sense. Like in spoken language, uh, there's a lot of abandoned 
utterances and ideas that continue going on and on and on. And if you start thinking about it, which I'm starting to now, this sentence that I've been saying, for instance, is actually still happening and it hasn't finished just yet. And I still keep going with it and I can keep going because oral language is like that. But if I wrote this sentence down, it's still one sentence, even at this moment in brackets at the moment, it would be really hard to read. But in oral language, you can use gesture, you can use um, intonation, you can use pausing to keep the reader with you. Still one sentence, by the way, but in written language, you can't do that. So, the sentence boundaries, the paragraph boundaries really become important so that you don't have that redundant information coming again and again. Sentence finished. Thank you. Full stop. Couldn't agree more. Um, However, uh, so yeah, to, to summarize the main point there that I took away, like explicit instruction demystifies what experts do and means that people who don't naturally pick these things up from their environment stand a chance basically and to add to that it's explicit instruction in the kinds of the 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 knowledge of the language structures and the knowledge of different sentence strategies at the time the student needs them so there's a a scope and sequence that is really clear that comes through in the writing revolution around which things you really should focus on first and get mastery of because they're all basically dependent on those previous strategies and it continues to build so explicit instruction at the right time at the you know the right level of mastery that you're looking for at those particular levels before you move on so that sense of building is really really important and yes it has to be explicit because if you're trying to just intuit those ideas from reading texts um you're going to leave a lot of students behind I also like to add, you said we need to support people to write in ways that we don't necessarily speak because oral language affords a lot of flexibility. Uh, But also, a lot of the best orators speak the way that one would like to write with the structure, with the signposting. You know, if if people want to listen to a great example of this, they can go back and listen to EEEE. Uh, with Daisy Christodoulou because it's like you'll ask her a question and she'll be like, oh, great question. Here's three points on that. Bang, bang, bang. Let me provide some evidence. Go through it and here are those three points again. Bang, bang, bang. So It's like a mini essay she's giving you as a response off the cuff. It's a beautiful thing and I love it and I I increasingly try to do it myself with varying levels of success. But, yeah, so so it can can also go both ways. Just to round out this little section on – the value and the importance of kind of explicit guidance to really scaffold student writing. I wanted to share with listeners and also with yourself, Nathaniel, if you haven't come across it, this fantastic book that I've had sitting in on my computer since like 2018, but haven't spent enough time looking at. It's called The Elements of Eloquence by Mark Forsyth, aka The Inky Fool. And that's actually the book that you, um, it's actually a book that you talked about in the Judith Hockman uh, episode, which I just re-listened to in preparation for this evening. So, and it's, it's way back then. Yeah, you talked about the elements of eloquence then. There you go. Well, so what it does, is it has 39 devices for writing that give great insight into how the, even those who are potentially adults can continue to further their writing skills. I thought it might be fun just for us to, jump into one of them. So, what I'm going to do actually, Nathaniel, I'm going to share my screen and jump onto the contents and you tell me if something jumps out to you. So, if there's anything that I have no idea upon, which I think there might be a few there. All right. So, the first chapter is alliteration. So, that's, um, you know, have the same consonant or the same consonant cluster at the start of every word in a phrase, for instance. Can you think of something alliterative, Ollie? Galloping gazelles. 
the education research reading room. There's a lot of E's there. Exactly. This one, I don't know. This is chapter two and I don't know what it is. Polypaton. I don't know what that is. Polyptoton, I would guess. Uh, it's a little bit small on my screen. Polyptoton or polyptoton? What is that? All right. I'm going to read it for this. Is Polyptoton is one of the lesser known rhetorical tricks. It has no glamour. It isn't taught to school children. It has a silly name which sounds a bit like polyp, a word for a nasal growth. In fact, it comes from the Greek for many cases, but that hardly makes up for it. Even once you've explained that, that that's because it involves the repeated use of one word as different parts of speech or in different grammatical forms, polyptoton remains incorrigibly unsexy. Please please me is a classic case of polyptoton. The first please is please the interjection as in please mind the gap. The second please is a verb meaning to give pleasure as in this pleases me. Same word, two different parts of speech. It's easy once you ponder it to see how people could feel that the polyptoton was a little perverse. Mm, especially if you choose those examples. We've learned something new. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's what we've learned. Great. Well, we started talking about run-on sentences and we ended up with please, please me, Nathaniel. So, I think it's probably time for us to move on. It's a departure from this um, rabbit warren that we've ended up in. Indeed. The final thing that we thought we might touch on in terms of writing guidance today was one of the other units from Write to Learn, which is all about narrative through story grammar. Now, we won't just in the interest of time, Nathaniel, we won't go through a full kind of lesson demo as we did with the run-on idea, but could you just give us like a maybe a three-minute summary of what's covered in the narrative through story grammar modules? So, um, something that the writing revolution does really well is fiction texts. It, it has elements that you could use within narrative, but it doesn't dwell a lot on, um, say, the macro structure, which is like the overall parts of um, a narrative genre. And stories are structured very differently to nonfiction texts. So, um, story grammar actually comes from many, you know, decades old research into how children tell stories and retell stories and the elements that they include. And there's actually a developmental sequence that they follow in terms of what makes a basic story work. So, as a, as a tool for helping students to write their own stories and not the same old sort of repeated or meandering sort of tales that students find themselves doing, but actually stories that have um, a, a nice structure to them. Storygram is really helpful. So, the main elements of Storygram are character. All stories need to have a character or at, le or at least one. Um, setting and then problem. And that sets up the basis of the story. And there might be things before that and, you know, um, uh, things that... You know, you might allude to the problem or it might develop over the course of a few pages, but in a, in a student's story, which might be only two pages long, the problem comes pretty quickly. There's then the character's reaction to that problem, which is like the feeling, and then the, the character's forced into creating a bit of a plan in order to solve the problem. So, um, once they've got a plan in mind, they attempt to solve that plan. They might get it right the first time, it sort of might work or it might not. So, in an example, in the, one of the units, we did one from an ancient Egypt sort of example. We had a situation where students were exploring the pyramids in Giza and it was modern day times, but they found themselves trapped inside one of the pyramids. And suddenly there was this noise coming from um, a sarcophagus around the corner and they thought maybe it was going to be a mummy. So, that was the problem in the story. And 
logically, some of the kids were really um, scared. One of the kids who was quite adventurous was actually pretty excited. And so there's that variation in feelings. They created a plan to try and get out there. They, you know, they, they tried to find a trap door. They tried to push the sarcophagus open and seeing if there's a way to get out through that. And they attempted to solve that problem multiple ways. Then as a consequence, um, through mucking around, they then accidentally pressed a secret button. So that was the consequence from those attempts and it was unexpected. Then the last elements of story grammar are the ending. So how the story resolves and then how the characters feel at the end. So it, it's basically um, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, nine basic elements in a full story grammar. But when we introduced this to preps, we did about um, like a four version, a four component version of this. So we stripped things back so that it wasn't as exhaustive. So we just did character setting problem, feeling and ending. And, and that's all they needed to have a basic narrative. And when children tell narratives in oral language, they tend to do the same thing where they strip some of the parts back. So the characters might not say how they're feeling. It might just be implied from what they then ne do next. They might not explicitly create a plan of what they wanted to do. So you don't hear that idea of, oh, I wish I could have done this or if only I could figure out a way to do that. But they, they end up solving the problem. So in later narratives in year one and year two, we introduce this in a way that students are able to extend upon those stories so they include all those essential elements and they use the sentence level strategies to make those stories as interesting as possible. So, in the ancient Egypt example, we had a positives to explain how the characters were and what their characteristics were. We had um, subordinating conjunctions to link those ideas together and make it exciting. We used sentence types to do exclamations and things when they were in shock about the, the sound of the mummy coming towards them. And it was a, essentially a way for them to use all those writing strategies in an, uh, a form of text that was quite entertaining and could let their writing really shine into, in a creative way. So, we feel like it's a really good contribution to what the writing revolution does and it takes it into a different direction and one that allows students to write narratives in a really productive and, and clear way that then gives them a structure they can eventually break because not all stories will do these elements in the same order. You know, when you have sophisticated TV narratives, you've got multiple um, narratives happening at once and characters having solving multiple problems in different ways. So, when, when you break it down like this, you can get students to create a decent narrative. And then as they master it, similar to the other parts of the writing process that we talked about today, they can then manipulate and play with that narrative and, and go much further than what they initially did. That's great. And I love how it's bringing together many of those kind of sentence level elements that we were talking about earlier with the kind of more macro, more structural elements of the, the narrative to, to really scaffold students to write some high quality work. If, if people are keen to get their hands on these resources, you said there's a whole, there's like lesson plans and slides from, can you tell us like how much is available again? So, we've got, um, and they're not all like perfectly created, like, you know, some of them have been put together by very busy teachers. So, we'd say that they're still a work in progress, but we have essentially week, um, daily lessons for every week of the year from the first year of school, which is prep or kinder or foundation, whatever you call it, all the way to through to year six. So, if your school was looking to do this, you could use some of those units, you could use most of those units, you could use them as a starting point and adapt them to your context. The reality is that a lot of the thinking behind the bulletproof definitions um, actually um, you know, help to get the, the teaching of these concepts really down pat and bring the writing revolution to life in a way that, that also marries with explicit instruction. So, those um, resources are available that people can access um, via the, um, the, the Cognitorium website, which is my um, website. Fantastic. And we'll make sure we leave a link to that in the show notes. Nathaniel, you've achieved a lot over the last few years. 
I mean, you know, your PhD wasn't wasn't that long ago. You've launched Think Forward Educators, which you which you can tell us a little about about in a moment. You've contributed significantly to these resources, um, and also the forms resources and the the reading to learn resources. And I've probably missed a whole heap of other things uh, along the way as well. And I know you've told us all that you're, you're writing on a book as well, and also made the transition into higher education, so on and so forth. The list continues, and you do have a, a wife and, and two kids as well. Do you have any productivity hacks or tips for listeners? Well, actually, <laughs> many years ago, I started writing a blog about organisation and productivity. I was like, oh, I'm really into this. I want to try and perfect it. And I have to say that every time I've tried to institute a new routine for getting my productivity to work, it's sort of it's always failed to some degree. So I've tried lots of different strategies. And at the moment, my New Year's resolution for this year is using a paper diary and and writing sort of monthly tasks that then get turned into weekly tasks and then daily tasks. And look, it'll work for a time, but I always know, and many people will find this, that those structures tend to fall apart if suddenly you've got one of those days where you just don't have time to, to do what I like to call meta-organization, which is organizing your organization system. So, if you haven't had time to keep up that habit and to actually check like what tasks have I got, do I need to move them to next week or next month, it can feel like, oh, I have to just give up on this system. So, I can say that you know I've managed to do these things just by eating up a lot of my own personal time, I have to say. And uh, my wife knows that the science of learning and, and teaching is really, it's my job, but it's also my hobby. It's its what I live and breathe and everything. So, um, in many ways, I've used that passion and that spare time that I might have used to play video games or something and put it into doing this sort of stuff. So, um, in, in many ways, it's the investment of time, but I have experimented over the years with different ways of organizing myself. And one of my goals this year is to try and get to inbox zero. That's my real like my passion is trying to get my emails down to zero. It's at the moment, it's atrocious. But the, the, the process of, I guess, seeing everything that's coming at you and planning like the bigger stuff first and then trying to fit the medium stuff and then the short-term stuff, I think that's a really a big um, lesson that I learned from doing year 12 and, and university and things like that. And I'd like to get that to work more with my life at the moment, but it's always an uphill battle. So, I think if you were looking for productivity hacks, try different things, you know, try and institute big overarching goals and, and, and make it work. But know that when life gets crazy, you often don't have enough time to organize yourself. So, you have to sort of have a backup system in place, if you like, um, so that you at least um, respond to things that are really urgent or um, have a system to, to get back to people if they're waiting for you, which I know there's a few people waiting for me right now. There you go. One, one of the things I've found most helpful is, well, there's a lot of things you can let fall through the gaps, right? And a lot of them in the broad scheme of things don't really matter that much. But there's a few things that if they do fall through the cracks, like you're in trouble or you've really let someone down who's important to you or you've, you've let a bunch of kids down or whatever it might be. That's happened to me like a couple of times over the last couple of years. And so what I've worked out is working for me at the moment to really hit those really important things is basically just put it in a calendar not a paper calendar, Google Cal for me. Well, I do both. So, that's the thing. It's like one's, one's a backup system. The, the, the Google calendar or the, the online calendar is the backup. The paper one is the one to get it into my head because I think when I write it on paper, I can have a better visual of what my month is going to look like and I can make better decisions about whether to say yes to things. Got it. Oh, that's a good one. Yeah. So, so get it in the calendar is what you're, you're saying. Get it in the calendar. Make it red if it actually, if it's like one of these high, if it's like a presentation or something that if I just forget to prepare it, I'm in trouble and then have a time every day where I look one to two weeks ahead in my calendar. And for me, like, you know, tie it to brushing your teeth or making a cup of tea or 
drinking a morning coffee, like something you know you're going to do and just look one to two weeks ahead. And that means that like I haven't been caught by surprise for about a year and it's worked really well. And then, you know, there's to-do lists and stuff as well. But like that that core practice of every day, look one to two weeks ahead means that generally I don't miss those really, really important things. Mm. No, I think it's it's always a bit of a battle, I think, because um, if you're a busy person, there's always multiple things you're juggling. Um, so, yeah, prioritization is the key, but how you then find time for, for all of that thinking. I think if you turn it into a manageable sort of routine, like you're saying, I think that's it, it means that you don't get caught out, which is the worst feeling in the world. 100%. So, I, I listed a few things that you're, you're into and you've been doing, Nathaniel. Do you want to, like, give us a bit of a a bit of a rundown of some of the main things you're, you're really excited about at the moment? Sure. So, um, if, as some people might know, I founded a, um, a, a community of teachers and educators called Think Forward Educators, basically trying to um, reverse the backward thinking that exists in so many um, fields of, of education and and give teachers the, the power to implement the science of learning and science of reading in their classrooms. Um, so, by teachers and by educators for educators. Um, so, that's a registered charity now and um, we're, we've, we've got plans in the next few years to, to really expand and grow our reach and try and make the science of learning a household name, if you like, for teachers and help it have it really accessible and easy for them to start implementing and to support each other. So, that's Think Forward. Um, I've, I've done a lot of work at Brandon Park to um, create these sort of materials. And so, Read to Learn and Write to Learn are those two big ones. Um, Read to Learn is about reading comprehension. Write to Learn we've talked about today. Um, my colleague, Shane Pearson, has created this incredible curriculum, which is for word, reading, and spelling called FORMS, which stands for Phonology, Orthography, Morphology, etymology and semantics and it essentially teaches the sounds the spelling rules and then the morphemes that allow students to spell read and understand words and it's a, a curriculum that's going to be available you know from f so foundation or prep all the way to year six um every day planned and ready to teach and it's it's an opportunity for people to access it for free so, Shane is a bit of a genius in the way that he's done this and he's perfected this sequence and this way of explaining these certain spelling rules or morphological patterns. And um, it's always a work in progress, but he's essentially making more and more units of these available every day. So, if you haven't looked at forms and if your school doesn't have a systematic approach to teaching reading, spelling or morphology, this is a real game changer for people in my opinion. The other thing to mention is the work that we're doing at Latrobe. The Solar Lab is has grown. It, it's not just um, the two big people like Pat. Um, Pam and Tanya. There's also some junior academics joining, so um, myself and Tessa Weedman included. And there's big things going to be coming out of the Solar Lab in the next few um, months and years. So um, one to watch, I think, in that space. Fantastic. And we'll, we'll make sure we we include links to all of those things in the show notes. And I can also add one other thing at Latrobe uh, that we did last year, and that's coming up this year as well. As I ran a practical classroom management course. Dr. Mark Daly, which um, lots of people, especially grad teachers, particularly enjoyed. So, uh, I'll put a link to that in the show notes too. Nathaniel, what advice would you give to your first year teacher self? Look, I, I made the transition to a teacher, you know, not that that long ago. I think I'd, I worked as a specialist and a, and a speech pathologist with a linguistic background for so long. I was always a, a sort of a, a outside the classroom looking in. Now, with, with that view of um, 
you know, becoming a classroom practitioner and working in that space um, the last couple of years, I think nothing really beats spending time in classrooms with students and teachers and also learning from each other. So I really value the role of the instructional coach as a learning partner in perfecting and, and refining classroom practice because the coach themselves actually learns a lot just by being in those classrooms. So I think um, any any first year teacher just value the opportunity to go and see your colleagues and to see them do, do what they do. And, and you know, you, you basically, Dave Mulcunas likes to say that um, great teachers create and invent, the best teachers steal. So if you see something good, start using it. And, you know, I can say that a lot of the things that I have in my that toolkit now I've, I've borrowed from people and I will attribute where I can, but I'll forget eventually where I've got them from. So I'm sure there's things, things that people will borrow from me as well. That's, that's really good advice. Any recommendations about people to follow on Twitter? You've already, obviously, everyone from the Solar Lab, and we'll link to them, like Pam Snow, Tanya Seri, and so on. Any anyone else that you ha- who you haven't mentioned today that people on on Twitter should should be following? I think um, the work that Reed Smith is doing at Oka is very you know close to my heart as well. He's got this mission at the moment with his um, organisation to bring high quality resources to all teachers, and he's crowdsourcing that work and those those brilliant lessons and units that they're creating at, at Oka Education to make them available to all teachers. Um, and teachers, it's by teachers for teachers, the same sort of approach. I'd also um, basically follow Natalie Wexler. She's constantly writing about writing, but also about knowledge building and reading comprehension. And she's got a really clear voice that articulates, even from a non-teaching perspective, she articulates um, some of the gaps, gaps that we have in our practice at the moment and, and challenge us to really think beyond, you know, the science of reading debates just being about early reading space, but actually a, about a wider conversation about what schooling is for and, and whether it's enough to get students reading about things they're familiar with or, or whether we should be using reading as an opportunity to learn about the world. And I think that's one of our strongest messages, which aligns with Eddie Hirsch's um, life work, if you like. The last person I'd say is Emily Hanford. A lot of people have listened to her podcast and um, follow her on Twitter, but the, you can't underestimate the power of her storytelling and the the changes that it's making in the English-speaking world, especially in America right now. Keep following her and what she's doing because um, it's certainly tapping into the new zeitgeist around how we think about teaching and reading. Hugely influential and, you know, I, I know a lot of people have just enjoyed sold, sold a story. My wife has enjoyed listening to that one as well, and I think it, it grip, grips everybody. Book recommendations. Many of these books I'm going to mention, you've had these authors on the show, so it's going to be a bit of revision for people because I'm, I'm talking about some of the greats. Um, Seven Myths About Education, Daisy Christodoulou. You can't really go past this as an introduction to some of the weirdness that we've inherited in the epoch that we're in as educators. She does it so well. Explicit direct instruction, I think, as an introduction to how explicit instruction should work and how it should be a bit of a roadmap for teachers who are unfamiliar with the space. Um, Hollingsworth and Yabara's um, text is is really fantastic as an introduction. And a lot of that um, you can see in the Right to Learn and Read to Learn resources that we've used as well as in forms as well. And then the final one, The Writing Revolution. If you haven't read it, if you don't have a copy, this should be your Bible for thinking about the art of the sentence, the paragraph and the text and how to make it come alive for your students. There is just so much gold in there and it's written in a really accessible way. Any last calls to action? Things you'd like people to go away today and do? 
Definitely. I think um, as, as teachers, you can get overwhelmed with all the things that you could potentially do and all the things that you have missed out on on your university education. I think um, listeners of this podcast would realize that there's a, a whole world of knowledge out there that probably wasn't part of our preparation as teachers. So, don't be afraid to just try things out in your classroom. Experimentation, you know, giving things a go, even without having the firmest grasp of things is really important because you learn a lot from trial and error. And your students, even though you, you don't feel confident you can do it exactly how you know you should because you, you've you've got that awareness now of how much you don't know as a teacher and as a learner your students will benefit from that process of you trying to implement change in your classroom so don't don't be afraid to try the other thing is that there's this new learning that that all teachers are doing there's no schools out there that are doing everything perfectly and are um, you know fan- amazing and fantastic everyone is on this journey of you know there's a re- renaissance if you like of people learning about learning and a learning about teaching and as a result we're all learning together so don't feel like that you're alone and the last piece of advice is to always reach out if you need support i think one of the biggest benefits we've seen with think forward educators is our mentoring program and our principals forums where people actually come together and receive support from each other so we've got volunteer mentors that that um, take on mentees and just speak to them and just have an opportunity to unpack and to give advice or to suggest things and you can set up these relationships and support networks with anyone but um, there are lots of networks out there that you could draw upon that um, hopefully will fulfill a need that you've got in that journey wherever you are. Nathaniel Swain, thank you so much for your time this evening. It's been a very, very wide-ranging discussion. We went on many tangents and down a few rabbit holes, but I hope in that exploration we kind of modelled some of the excitement and enthusiasm for uh, reading, writing and learning that we hope to instil in our students as well. You know, in addition to that kind of fun exploration, I hope that people feel, and I'm, I'm sure people will feel that, the the amount of kind of practical advice shared both in this podcast but probably more importantly uh, practical advice and, and resources shared through all of your different projects and partnership projects that you've done is just immensely useful to teachers immensely helpful to the profession and also unfathomably generous uh, in terms of the the amount of personal time that you've spent on this so for myself and, and for, for many other teachers I've spoken to, thank you for setting up Think Forward Educators. Thank you for all these phenomenal resources. Thanks for coming to the podcast today and for, for having having fun. And, yeah, really, really grateful that you you and so many other great educators are now at La Trobe and training the next generation of teachers. And I, I just can't wait to, to be more involved and, and continue to collaborate with you in future. Thank you, Ollie. That means a lot. I think, yeah, it's it, it's it's this kind of gift that I would have wanted if I had started my career as a teacher and had that training and didn't have the background that I had. You know, we need to help each other and what better way than to share the, the, the energy and the time that we've put into these resources because you don't have to create everything from scratch. There's no point doing it if, if we're um, able to learn from each other in that way. So, that's that's what we're all about. Hi, listeners. One very important resource we didn't get to discuss today was the Syntax Project a series of high quality lessons ready to teach in your classroom curated by Stephanie Levere at Serpentine Primary School. Get access via the show notes. Ollie has put them in there for you. Thank you for listening to this episode of the ERRR podcast. If you're keen to never miss a podcast, a blog post, or other exciting educational announcement, then jump onto ollielovell.com forward slash subscribe for my weekly summary of key takeaways on all things teaching and learning. That web address again is ollielovell.com forward slash subscribe. 
If you enjoyed this episode, then please share it with friends and colleagues. And if you've got any suggestions for future guests you'd like to hear on the ERRR podcast, I'd love to hear from you. Or if you've got any questions, comments, thoughts, or reflections on this episode or any other ERRR episode, I always welcome contact from listeners via Twitter or email. Thanks for your time and listening today. Have a wonderful week. And until next time, keep learning.